0: This morning, as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians, our sermon text is found in Philippians 3, 12 to 14. However, I'm going to start reading this morning in verse 10 to provide us the context uh, for verses 12 to 14 that we'll look at today. This passage is printed for you on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to follow along there. Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold. It is the most valuable thing in your life. It is more precious even than fine gold. God's word is sweeter than honey. It is to be desired more than anything that you possess. For it is sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, That I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us now the grace of your Holy Spirit that we might hear this portion of your word and read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it so that we may even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. To remember is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us as human beings. Without our memories, we would be unable to perform the simplest of tasks. We would be incapable of forming relationships with our family or friends. Amnesia, in this way, is something that takes away our capacity to function as we should, as we're created to, as human beings. Indeed, without human memory, without that capacity that we possess to remember, civilization itself would be impossible. Every day would be the same. Music, literature, the arts, architecture, mathematics, economics, politics, science, all of these fundamental human acts would be impossible without the power of human memory. And yet, the human capacity to forget is also one of God's greatest blessings. I mean, think about it for a moment, right? It's fascinating if you consider this. If we did actually remember every single thing we've ever experienced, every day of our lives from beginning to end, every conversation we've ever had, every word we've ever read, every person we've ever met, we would be completely swamped and overwhelmed, right? With lots of unimportant information rattling around in our heads. We couldn't function that way either. And so God in his kindness gives us this remarkable ability to forget. Somehow in a mysterious way that no one understands, right? No scientist understands how this works. God, in his kindness, has given us the capacity to only remember certain things, only remember those things that are important and significant enough to keep in our memories. Now, to be clear, this doesn't work perfectly, right? We know this. It doesn't work the way it should exactly in this fallen world. All of our memories are flawed. Sometimes, actually, we remember things that we think we remember things that didn't happen or didn't happen in the way that we think we remember them happening. Sometimes we can't remember things that we feel like we need to be able to remember, right? That person's name that we met just a few minutes ago, where we put our keys or, for me, where I put my glasses, where our computer password is written down or what it is in our heads, and sometimes, more painfully... We remember things that we prefer to forget. That's what we call trauma, right? Those things that are burned into our memories. Harm that has been done to us or perhaps harm we've witnessed done to others or even potentially harm that we have done to others. All of us who have lived in this world for any length of time know what it is like to carry memories like this. We know this burden. We know this weight. Now, the Apostle Paul also lived in this world, and he also knew what it was like to carry the past. In his life before he met Jesus, Paul, then called Saul, had done things I'm sure he would have preferred on some level, To have forgotten. Acts chapter 7 tells us in some great amount of detail about how Paul witnessed the brutal murder in cold blood of a man named Stephen. A righteous man, a young preacher who was surrounded by a mob, cast out forcibly from the city of Jerusalem, and then they picked up stones And beat him to death. Acts doesn't tell us whether Paul actually participated in this horrible, horrible, violent act, but it makes clear that he at least watched and he approved of it. Then in Acts 8, we read this verse almost immediately after Luke tells us, and Saul, that is Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I mean, there's so much violence contained in that short verse, right? Paul, with armed men, was going house to house in Jerusalem, acting on rumor or innuendo about who had become baptized, who following Jesus and beating down their doors and forcibly arresting and dragging away fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, and throwing them into prison. I mean, think about that, right? It doesn't take much imagination to consider what that must have been like, the trauma that Paul must have inflicted on others during that time, the way he must have hardened himself to men and women crying out for mercy to children who must have been terrified by the men bursting in their home, Paul at their head, dragging away their parents. But of course, Paul doesn't only carry memories from the pain that he's inflicted on others. Now, since Paul met Jesus on that road to Damascus, he's experienced plenty of violence against himself that he carries with him. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find that it's full of descriptions of Paul getting beat up, Paul getting left in a bloody heap somewhere, Paul getting thrown into prison, Paul barely escaping with his life again and again, Paul facing down riots and mobs and crowds full of men who want to kill him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul summarizes his experience. Like this, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one, which means that he was scourged each of those times with thirty-nine lashes of the whip. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Now, Paul lists these experiences here in quick succession. But each of these things happened to him, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour. Each time he was scourged or beaten or stoned or imprisoned or shipwrecked. Those were real experiences of harm and violence and abuse burned into his mind and his memory. The point is, Paul is not different than you or me, probably even more than most of us. Paul is a man who knew what it was to carry the pain and burden of the past. He had done terrible things, and terrible things had been done to him. And it is in that context that Paul writes the words that we read in our passage this morning. He says, I count all things as loss so that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not, Paul says, that I have already obtained this. I don't already have the resurrection or already am made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind And straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, I know that all of us carry things from our past. I get that. I also carry my memories but here, we need to see in this passage, Paul is inviting us into a kind of holy forgetfulness for those things that we carry. A kind of lightness and freedom toward whatever we might carry with us, whatever that is. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that many of us don't have traumas in our past that we need to remember in order to process those things that have happened to us and to be healed. And I'm not saying that it's always a bad thing to remember even our mistakes that we've made or sins that we've committed so that we can continue to repent and learn and grow and embrace maturity. But I am saying that we need to understand and embrace what Paul is advocating for here because he is advocating for something. What he's advocating for is that the Christian life is not fundamentally a life lived looking backwards, looking towards the past, whatever that is. You see, by saying that Paul says, I forget what lies behind, I don't think he means he's literally forgotten all the terrible things he's done or all the terrible things that have happened to him. That's clearly not the case because He writes about those things to the churches. He remembers them. But Paul is giving us a model of something. He's giving us a model of what it means to de-emphasize the weight and power of our past and our memories and our regrets and our wounds. To not be bound by those things. To not be compelled to spend our life looking constantly behind us. Yes, all of us carry regrets. All of us carry wounds. Yes, this is true. But Paul is teaching us here that to be a Christian person means to live a life that is looking forward fundamentally. A life that is fundamentally oriented toward what lies ahead, toward the future to come. And what exactly is it that Paul is talking about here that lies ahead. What is it that he's not obtained? What is it that he's pressing on to make his own? The answer is found in verse 11, the context for this passage. There, Paul says he counts everything as loss, and he has fellowship with Christ in his sufferings, even making, being made like him in his death. Why? So that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul's looking forward to. The resurrection of the dead, beloved. That's the prize that Paul is seeking. That is what he is pressing on to know and experience. And this is why all of his life is oriented towards that point. Paul wants above all things to attain the resurrection of the dead on the last day and he wants it for his readers as well. He wants it for you. He wants it for me. And yes, Paul has not yet obtained it. He has not yet been made perfect. But as he awaits his trial by Caesar in a prison cell in Rome and writes these words, he knows that the finish line is coming. And so he strains forward so that he might, by any means possible, he says, attain to the resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> I think it's worth asking the question this morning. Does this sound like your life? Are you pressing toward something? Are you straining toward What lies ahead for you and if so, what is that thing? What is it that gets you up in the morning? What is it that consumes your attention, your thoughts, your plans, your imagination? Friends, I would suggest that Paul is teaching us here by his own example. That what you should be desiring above all things in the one precious life that you have been given is that you might, by any means possible, be permitted to share in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. I would submit that that is where Paul has oriented his life. And that is where, if you are wise, you will orient yours As Lewis has pointed out, C.S. Lewis, the problem, friends, with our desires is not that they are too weak or not that they're too strong, rather, but that they are too weak. We're so easily satisfied by lesser things because in the resurrection we are offered eternal life. Eternal life without sin or suffering or pain. Eternal life with Jesus Christ. And friends, to be clear, by eternal life I don't mean some sort of abstract, disembodied spiritual nothingness. It's not nirvana that Paul is looking forward to. No, what Paul anticipates and what we look forward to is physical embodied life in a cre- the created world that will never end. That's what is promised to us in the resurrection eternal life with all the joys of this world and that this creation has to offer only without the terrible pain of sin and sorrow and death that afflict every moment of our experience now. And not only all that, but Jesus too, the fairest of the sons of men who calls us to himself, who says, desire me above all things. Friends, if you are going to see Jesus, there's only one way for you to do that. You had better be raised from the dead because you cannot see him now. Not with your eyes. There's only one way to see your Lord Christ, and that is through death and resurrection, just like him. Knowing Jesus and the resurrection, that is what Paul wants more than anything else. To know him not and only in a mirror dimly, but face to face in the fullness of knowledge that is only possible in the flesh and without the stain of sin. This resurrection is what Paul seeks with all of his energy. Beloved, I don't know exactly what your relationship is to the resurrection of the dead, I don't know how much you actually think about what is offered to you in the gospel of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because what is offered to you, to be clear by Jesus, is not just a little self-improvement, right? So that you might manage your money a little better and live a little more morally and get along with your neighbors, get ahead in your job. It's not just a little pickup to get you through hard times, No, friends, the hope and promise that is offered to you in the good news of Jesus is what men and women have burned at the stake for. Like, that's how precious it is. The promise of the resurrection of eternal embodied life in the new creation, that's what motivated the saints who came before you to suffer mocking and flogging and chains, and imprisonment, to be stoned and sawn in two, to be killed with the sword, to go about in the skins of sheep and goats. These are the kinds of things that have been joyfully endured by those who long for the resurrection of the dead and have set their hope upon it. Because they know what is offered to them and beloved, what is offered to you is nothing less than triumph. Absolute victory over death. That's what is offered to you. An eternal resurrection life with God and all of the saints in the new creation. Beloved, I hope I hope that the resurrection of the dead is something that slips into your dreams when you sleep at night. I hope it's something you dream about. I hope the resurrection that waits for you in the future is something that plays across your mind when you stop at a traffic light and you don't pull out your phone. I hope that the resurrection of the dead is something that steals into your thoughts when you wake up, and when you lie down, and when you sit at your table with your family or your friends. I hope that when you experience good things in this life, that something inside you is whispering, this isn't all, yes, this is good, this is beautiful, but this will be better. This experience will be so much richer and fuller and more joyful one day when the resurrection comes. I hope that when you imagine the future, friends, you don't just imagine whatever it is, the ideal experience that you can think of for yourself in this world. I hope that when you dream and imagine what lies before you, that you remember that whatever brief joys you might know in this short, temporary life is only a small shadow of what stretches before you. If you somehow, by any means possible, attain the resurrection from the dead, that is the great prize and crown for which the saints who have gone before you still wait for even now. That joy of the resurrection is the joy that was set before Jesus as he went to the cross and embraced death. Calvin puts it this way. He says, he alone has fully profited in the gospel who has accustomed himself to continual meditation Continual meditation upon the blessed resurrection. He alone, and I think this is a quote worth thinking about, he alone, Calvin says, has fully profited in the gospel and the good news of Jesus, who has made a habit, a custom, Calvin says, of regularly thinking about and imagining and dreaming about the resurrection that is to come. And Calvin is also implying the opposite. That if the promise of the resurrection is not something we're accustomed to meditating upon, we are missing something essential and fundamental to what is meant to give us hope and joy and peace and contentment in this life. What I am saying, beloved, is that if you are not happy In this life, if your joy is short-term and hard to maintain, then it is worth asking yourself, am I placing my happiness in the right place? Is my joy centered in something shifting or something firm? Am I spending my time and energy meditating on the thing that Jesus has actually promised to me. The thing that he has promised to me to be the fulfillment of all of the longings that I have. All of the hopes and dreams I possess. Because that is the resurrection. That is the thing that Jesus has promised to you, friend. And so somehow we have to live as though... Most of our life is uncertain, but this I know. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised. Somehow we have to narrow it down to that. If we are in Christ, then we will raise from the grave one day. And the only way we will do that is if we think about it. If we meditate on these things. This means, as Paul puts it to the Colossians, that we have to be those who set our minds on the things above, not on the things on earth. And he says we do this because we've died. And our life is hidden. Where? With Christ in God. He has gone before us, beloved. He is the first born from the dead. And his life in heaven now is God's certain pledge that what waits for you is the new creation. What waits for you is everlasting life. What waits for you is a resurrection like unto the resurrection of your Savior and Lord. And that is the prize. That is the goal. That is the reason we forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed give us the faith and grace that we need to imitate Paul, to look forward to the great hope that you've given us in your Son, the blessed resurrection. Indeed, Father, may we be a people who meditate on these things. Give us, Father, the seriousness and the joy to be like Jesus in that way. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.